Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Bronco Football Podcast number two. Jeff Caves back with you from Fate, Texas once again. The last time I broadcast or put together this podcast from Fate, Texas, I'll be moving to Flower Mound about a week from now. So we look forward to that. It's been great here in Fate, which is about 30 miles east of, of Dallas. Uh, the commutes are a little tougher when it comes to meeting people on downtown Dallas or on the other side, but that's uh, beside the point. What a great community uh, it is here. Met some great people at Chandler's Landing Tennis and uh, great people that live in and around this area. It's a shame that some of the high school football has been postponed. I'm sure would have had a chance to meet more, but none of that. Boise State is not too concerned about that. This is a Boise State football podcast, and I think the good news is there's no injury news to report for Boise State football, or they're not deciding to let any of us understand all of that as the practices continue and they prepare uh, for the opener against Utah State or just essentially get players back in shape. I would think at this point you're still looking at fundamentals, trying to understand where guys are at emotionally, and then get to where they're at physically. I mean, how many of them were in weight rooms or not? I know they were doing individual workouts when they had access, but there's been a lot of interruptions, and I'm sure they're putting that all back together right now. Everybody has seen glimpses of some of the stuff that's been released by the university of practice. But practice is continuing. No injury news. No COVID news coming out of the football program specifically, so that's good news on the football field. But the school, they've got different news, 100 Uh, tests positive last week 350 overall I guess this about that the the risk has been proven to be acceptable because players coaches staff are participating in football and there's no denying that they're not being held there without you know uh, against their will The, the the coaches for the money the staff for the money the job the players to get an education play football we know all these reasons so I think everybody understands by now that uh, COVID-19 is more dangerous than the flu. The The numbers don't lie. There are uh, many more people that have passed away from this particular disease uh, globally than flu. Uh, if you look at those averages, and, then, and I don't want to get into that. I don't want to go down the road of starting to question who's reporting what and in what way they do it and how they do it. And what are their motivations for uh, upping the numbers of COVID-19? Or what aren't their motivations for doing it more often? I'm going to leave that to other people to debate that particular world. I just know what I see in front of us. And one thing I would suggest that I've learned from all of this is we've not seen uh, many, if not, you know, very, very, very few fatalities related to COVID-19 amongst college football athletes, which is where most of the attention is. And until you start hearing about kids who are sick and hospitalized on ventilators and all of that, I don't think it's going to slow the college football world down. I think the rest of the world is slowed down. We've all had to slow down as travel has stopped, going to events, you're into your home and so forth. So that's how I see where this is at. It's certainly a devastating effect on everything from the youngest levels of sports where people who want to watch their kids perform are limited uh, up to the professional ranks where let's face it those stands are empty uh, for the majority of places let's get back on the field though there is football to discuss and the Air Force Academy is out running all over the country and That includes the Naval Academy. I mean, we understand how important that rivalry is. Uh, They have definitely been a factor for Boise State through the years to contend with. And looking at their game against Navy, it's really no surprise that they ran all over them. Uh, Highly effective. They found other people to get it done, including at the quarterback position. This is going to be a huge test for Boise State. And it's 
you know, as much, okay, fine. They're playing on Halloween. They're going to play the game in, in Colorado Springs. But, you know, what's the attendance factor going to be? I do think they let some of the um, mem members of the academy there go to the game. Um, and so that will provide some kind of uh, atmosphere per se. Um, but the rest of it will come from the Naval, uh, excuse me, the Air Force Academy players. Uh, this is a game that will be the second one for Boise State. When you throw out a young defensive line against this approach, and they seem to be very, very, very efficient up front, uh, this is going to be a huge test for them. Uh, I've been watching some BYU football, and Zach Wilson on fire, the, the BYU quarterback, 3-0 and on the year. Do you realize Zach Wilson has hit 84% of his throws? He has a 6-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. On top of that, the former Boise State recruit has been destroying opposition. And I realize Navy, LaTeX, Troy aren't necessarily world beaters uh, when it comes to comparing where BYU is at with you know their opponents and who they could be playing. And you can just go down the line from there. Um, I do have a lot of respect for Louisiana Tech. We know Troy has been a good football team. And if you are averaging a 41-point margin of victory over three, those three opponents, you got to take your hat off to BYU and realize that's going to be a, a challenging game for sure uh, for Boise State. That's the third game of the 2020 season at Albertson Stadium where they're still not expected to have fans. Uh, that'll be on the 7th of November. BYU, uh, they're going to get Texas-San Antonio at home in Provo. Uh, Texas San Antonio's three and one on the season, and there's no fans in the stands in Provo. Uh, they are in the orange uh, level of alert for COVID-19. They're still struggling to stop the virus spread there in Provo, so don't expect any changes and any fans in the stands to join them in Provo. The Group of Five uh, New Year's Day Six race is off and running. Uh, TCU gets a big win against Memphis. Uh, Central Florida loses. So you still have SMU and Cincinnati undefeated. And Central Florida has one loss now after that bad loss to Tulsa. You'll have to wait a little while for one more loss to come to either Cincinnati or SMU because they won't play until the 24th of October. I think it's Cincinnati, though, that gets Tulsa this week, so we'll see if Tulsa can continue this upset streak. Um, speaking of losses, we've lost a couple of bowl games. The Hawaii Bowl, the Bahamas Bowl is now shrinking away, so the Conference USA people are losing two bowl slots. The Mountain West and the Hawaii Bowl is losing one. It just tightens things up in terms of teams getting left out. Uh, the Red Box Bowl in San Francisco has already announced that they're out, so the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are also down uh, one opportunity. It could be slightly significant uh, for Boise State implications because, you know, in the past the Big Ten has sent somebody out to the Cheez-It Bowl in Phoenix, and Boise State has played there before, and maybe they won't be able to, you know, uh, have that opportunity because the Big Ten is going to fill all their spots now that they're down one particular bowl game but to me this bowl game season is going to be unlike any other uh, all bets are off they could place teams regionally let them bus not make them go anywhere there's a lot of things that could would should happen between now and then that's a horribly difficult job right now to plan for the future as a bowl director so for now we do know at least those three bowl games will not be playing now, speaking of kids who are playing and looking closer at Boise State football, Taylon Green is the two, 2021 uh, commit out of Louisville High School, the Fighting Farmers. It's, um, it's really close to where I'm moving to in Flower Mound, and uh, he's having a pretty decent season. I'm sure he would like to maybe complete a little higher percentage of his throws, but three games into it, or two games into it, he's 29 of 55. Uh, three touchdowns, only one interception. He's thrown for 577 yards. Um, what's gaining more attention, though, there in Louisville is not only Green at quarterback, but his wide receiver teammate, Armani Winfield. Now, Armani Winfield is only a junior. He won't be around till the class of 22, but he's already got Texas, Alabama, and Oklahoma on him. So uh, let's hope that 
uh, Taylor Green can convince Armani Winfield that maybe Boise State should be for him, and there's some kind of package deal coming uh, in the future. A great conversation still coming up just after 60 seconds from now with a former Boise State football player who has a tremendous story from the Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma where he could not play due to injury to a life that got filled with drug abuse and crime and alcoholism and a medically induced coma to a comeback uh, unheard of um, amongst a lot of the medical community in Southern California. And Ryan Keating has a tremendous story to share with us. We'll get to that after this from Snake River Pool and Spa. Well, even though we moved to Texas, one good thing about being able to do this Boise State podcast is to tell you about Snake River Pool and Spa, somebody I worked with, Kyle and everybody in in Boise. And when it came time for us to decide what we were going to take with us to Texas and what we were going to leave behind, it was non-negotiable when it came to the hot spring spa. My wife had gotten so used to using those jets as therapy to soothe the muscles, relax, unwind, and it really didn't matter. So we got Snake River Pool and Spa to load it up. And we took the spa with us to Texas. So now in our new home in Texas, we have a pool with a spa, but it doesn't really matter because the hot spring spa pushes so much more pulsating jet water and massages and nurtures our bodies. It's not even close. In fact, I bet we don't even use that little spa in the pool because we have a hot spring spa from Snicker River Pool and Spa. Hot water therapy is all part of the deal. Make the wellness investment in yourself and do it at Snicker River Pool and Spa. Let the spa team show you how how to make it easy to take it easy, hit the spateam.com, call or text 208 Hot Tubs, or stop by a showroom in Twin Falls, Boise, or Meridian today. Snigger for Pool and Spa, a hot springs hot tub dealer, and more. Be a part of the Boise State home team. Ryan Keating came out of Huntington Beach, California to Boise State as an offensive lineman. He ended up as 6'4, 315 pounds, but he was a big kid coming out of Huntington Beach. He came out in 2003 and uh, ended his. Uh, career at Boise State, uh, not on the field uh, with his teammates playing against Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl, but on the sidelines. Uh, He didn't play much. Uh, He was hurt his senior year that entire season with a serious leg injury that he um, suffered uh, requiring surgery, and it was quite a serious injury and cost him his career. Um, He self-admits in this conversation we'll have with Ryan about you know, he really wasn't that great of a player, but he still had aspirations from his ego's side of things to, to play football. But as he was recovering during that miraculous 2006 season at Boise State, he was getting the obligatory standard dosage of Oxycontin or uh, whatever painkillers were being administered to him to overcome uh, that. And he was weaning himself off of it as he was trying to get back in shape and play and see what he could uh, get done. But that began his slide because he didn't recover. He didn't kick the dependence of the painkiller and it only accelerated. And that slide started in Boise and ended in 2009 uh, in Southern California when Ryan Keating was ultimately arrested on four counts of misdemeanor burglary, sent to jail. His addictions turned from painkillers after that to alcohol, and he became an alcoholic with daily consumption. Ultimately, it led to a pancreatic collapse. He was hospitalized, and a medically induced coma uh, had to overcome him for several weeks just so he could make it. Um, It's an unbelievable story. He's recovered now, engaged, working full-time. You'll hear this story about how he works in and around special needs kids, how that was in his background, how he got his clearance uh, to be even go back into schools, high schools, and teach. It's one hell of a story. And Ryan Keating uh, started his recovery process emotionally by uh, really writing himself a letter and anybody else who would read it. It was his journey. And so this all started when Ryan forwarded me a copy of his story and how he went from uh, painkillers to jail to alcoholism to a medically induced coma to where he is today. Here's Ryan Keating's story. So, you know, I got the letter from you and and I know that, you know, I read it and I wondered if you'd prepared it and, and sort of done it recently or you had prepared this letter telling your story about your addictions and recovery ryan 
uh, earlier, or maybe you did it when you got out of the hospital or at some other stage. So the story that you wrote about your addiction and your recovery and all the consequences of it, when did you write that? When did you reflect on all that? I wrote that um, probably, I've been sober yeah, six years going on seven. So I wrote that probably my third year of sobriety. And I just took out my laptop, I pen the paper, um, just started typing and, and I've touched it up a few times, um, you know, here and there as, as things happen in my life and I reflect on more things, but yeah, it's just been, it's been a healing process to me to write it, you know, and uh, we do something like that. If you, if you're an alcoholic, Anonymous or AA, you put everything on paper, like everything you've done. Right. So, so you, you grow up in Surf City, USA, Ryan, you grow up in Huntington beach and you're probably a big strapping dude. And, you had a family, uh, your, your mom and dad were together. You had six brothers and sisters. So what was your family life like, you know, and it kind of sets the stage for what happened to you and, and maybe other people can relate. So what was it like? Yeah, growing up, I mean, I was best friends with, uh, with, with my brothers, my older brother, I idolized we were about a year and a half apart. Um, my younger, my younger brother right underneath me, he's a year and a half underneath me, but I just idolized my brothers and I idolized my parents and you know growing up it was good life was good and it wasn't you hear all these uh these horror stories if I had the worst childhood and it led me down the path of addiction and that wasn't that wasn't for me you know and it wasn't my life was good my parents did the best they could and did amazing um you know but I always felt that a part of me um I just always wanted to be like there was I guess there was a hole inside me I always wanted to be a part of part of something I drastically wanted to be popular. I wanted to be this. I wanted to be that. Um, I only played football because I was big, you know, because I, I had the frame for it. Um, but I wanted to be part of the team. I wanted to be, mm-hmm. you know, one of friends. And, and I was I was always seeking approval of everyone around me. It's been, mm-hmm. But it started, it started at home. Were you partying? Were you partying in high school? At, uh... Yeah. Yeah, I started drinking in high school. I started drinking in high school, thinking it's the only thing we do. It's what high school kids do. Um, you know, the Friday night, Saturday night drinking. But um, yeah, that's that, that was the gist of it. Um, you know, I wasn't really much a weed smoker in high school. Not that I was a, you know, a, an altar boy or anything like that. I just didn't like it. I tried it, didn't like it. Um, never tried painkillers in high school. Never did any cocaine or anything like that. Um, it was just all drinking. Yeah, Captain Morgan. Captain Morgan's. So you're, Morgan's. you're you, know, you must have been a big guy and a good enough football player to get uh, Boise State's attention. Dan Hawkins is the head football coach and. Yeah. Crossers there, and uh, we're visiting with Ryan Keating, who played offensive line at Boise State, starting in that 2002 year, and then was injured and didn't play in the Fiesta Bowl, but was still a member of the team. So, were you heavily recruited? Did that come out of the blue to you, or did did you have options, or what? No, not really. I, you know, I was a walk on here, walk on there offer. Um, a few, I remember New Mexico, a few like UNLV. But the whole time, Boise was the one that recruited me the hardest. It was Coach Riddle. Coach Riddle uh, called me all the time and just made me feel welcome. And um, I already knew in my head when I went up on the trip, I was going to probably end up going there, and I fell in love with the place. So Boise was the only real school at the time that was going after me pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Well, hard. It, it worked out. And then, you know, I know that you your playing career could have went better for you. Uh, yeah. But we'll talk about that. But <laughs> Going into your senior year, and this is Chris Peterson's first season as head football coach. There's change in the program. You're a senior. And what happened in that fall camp? What happened to you there? Uh, we were, you know, it was during fall camp. Um, you know, the story I, I used to believe, the story I used to believe was, um, you know, I was running with the starters. We were doing an inside run, um, inside run. And the starters, we finished all of our plays. Um, and then it was, you know, twos, the backups go in. I remember that day my backup wasn't practicing, so I decided to get more work. And I got hurt with the backups, and it was always like, yeah, I didn't know how to – I didn't play with those guys, and we weren't, you know, in unison or whatever. I was – you know, I took out, like, my blame thrower. I used to like to call it, like, blaming everyone. Mm-hmm. And I just started firing off the blame thrower, and, um, and I got, yeah, seriously injured my senior year. It was in fall camp in, in August. Um, you know, the ambulance came onto the field. They rushed me to the hospital. Um, they shot me with morphine on the way to the hospital, and that's when I felt uh, that first, um, you know, warm feeling. Um, 
I'll never forget that. It's not the first time I've ever taken painkillers, but that's that's one of the most memorable times I remember taking them. In, was, uh, in the hospital. What was the injury? What was it like, or what was it? The injury. Oh, the injury. It was a spiral fracture of my tibia, and then um, I I think it uh, broke my ankle in three or four different places, and I tore the tendons in my ankle. So it's like a lower leg. Um, it was a lower leg, and it was an ankle injury at the same time. So I was in a walking boot for a, month, for, for a few months, crutches for a few months. Um, they replaced or they repaired the tibia, or no, it was the it was the fibia, fibia. yeah, fibia. They repaired the tibia and, and reconstructed the ankle, um, and then I just went straight into rehab during you know, September starting the season. I was in the walking boot and rehabbing. And, and, um, well, could you uh, could you have gotten a medical red shirt, or had you red shirt, or or was it deemed you just physically were never going to be able to play football again, or what? I th yeah, I think that's what it was. It was eventually deemed. I know that I was thrown around. Maybe I can come back for the Fiesta Bowl, and that was always a, a, a dream. It was never, even if I could. I mean, I, I couldn't have stepped onto that field. Um, but it was, and I had red shirted, and then the doctors finally came back and said they couldn't they couldn't risk me spraining my ankle or, or breaking my ankle again. Cause it would, I have the, um, at that point in time, it's called, I think it's called a tightrope and it's now it's a common practice in the medical field, but it was newer then where there's like four, two screws on each side of my, my ankle. And then um, I think titanium ropes and they're, they're, they're tightened in to hold your ankle together. And I still okay. have it still in my body anymore. Basically it's like, yeah, you're yeah they couldn't risk it um, getting, you know, you know, more catastrophic damage. So uh, that was like, you know, and, and, and Ryan's like self-pity highway. That was like my first stop. It's like, oh no, I can't play anymore. And, you know, but Jeff, I was like, I was like the biggest underachiever when I played. You know, I didn't, hmm. I didn't put in the work. I, I wasn't, I was always afraid of, of failure. But so I didn't want to like go after it hard enough to even hit that, hit that wall, you know? Sure. So, but, you know, you're my, I, was, I was such a delusional guy, man. I thought I was the, you know, the best thing that's ever happened to the team. And, you know, and, and it, it wasn't, that wasn't the case at all. Um, but I blamed that injury a lot. I blamed it for like, oh, I couldn't have had chances to go move on to the next level or this and that. I wouldn't have sniffed the next level. But that was a nice, that was a easy blame. We're visiting with Ryan Keaton, former Boise State offensive lineman who, as you'll hear, uh, eventually addicted himself to opiates and uh, Oxycontin and alcohol and has now come full circle back to a productive career. We're telling that story. And Ryan, so you, you're recovering from this surgery. It's during the season. You're on a sort of regular painkillers per se. Nothing yeah. as long as, as Oxycontin and things are going well. You're, you're, you're recovering in the Fiesta Bowl you go to. When did things yeah raveling and you started grabbing prescription pills you weren't supposed to that started happening like almost immediately after the season um because at least during the season i felt like the thing I, you know like i talked about before always being a part of it. i was on the team it was like a job i could go i'd show up to the football center every day um sit through meetings i wasn't preparing for meetings so it was kind of just like a place to hang out for me and um once the season was over with i it's like I didn't have a purpose. I, I didn't have any, you know, I was still enrolled in school, wasn't really doing well in school. Um, and so at that time, the doctors were, I was doing well in my recovery. They were titrating me off of the medicine, like the, the normal, right, responsible way. And I wasn't, I wasn't having it. I was, I was uh, just scared of the kick. I was scared of uh, the withdrawal. Um, and I was more in love with the high. I was more in love with the feeling, the feeling of, uh, of masking that, that emotional and physical and, you know, just, I don't want to get philosophical with it. I just like getting loaded. I, I, I straight up just like getting loaded. And so what I started doing was obtaining them on my own. Um, and it was Oxycontin was what I, what I get my hands on. So it was stronger medicine than what the team doctors were giving me. And so I was taking those as well as getting off of what they're giving me. So to where I look like a shining star, this guy's healthy and getting better and he's not you know, if they would have drug tested me at that time it was not okay <laughs> sure how difficult was it to to find oxycontin that that spring of 2007 uh, how did you get it 
It was just through, I mean, I used to work in, in, in bars downtown and, and just, you know, it's, I guess, the, the underbelly of any city networking, you know, I mean, you talk about it or you hear about it and a friend of a friend or an acquaintance or whoever, and I got my hands on it and, uh, you know, and I was off and running and I never looked back and that's when I started spending every dime I had on it, every dime I had on it. How much did it cost and how much did you have to buy? You know, at that time... Um, it, it, it varied. I remember it, uh, it, a dollar a milligram. And so 60, 80 milligrams, so it could have been 60, $60 to $80, depending on what kind of pill you got. Um, it could have been, you can buy a 20 milligram pill and that's a dollar milligram, or you can get a deal. It's like consumer, you know, one-on-one, you can get a deal if you buy more. Um, but that that's the time, yeah, from, you know, I remember distinctly being up in Warsaw, like calling my parents or, calling my family members and telling them like, you know, uh, something with my rent went up or whatever, just making up the biggest excuses, um, the biggest excuses to get, to get loaded. And, uh, well, cause you're, it sounds like doing the math. I mean, if you're taking, you tell me four to six pills a day and those pills are costing $60 a piece, you got a $240 a habit a day. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're twelve hundred dollars, thirteen hundred dollars or more a month. I yeah, oh yeah, it, it it's just hard to keep up with. And uh, you know, Jeff, it, it's it's and then you start doctor shopping. And I remember, yeah, going to different doctors, and you know, my my ankle and leg hurt so bad, it didn't hurt, you know. And whatever and you started, I just started shopping around and wherever I can get. And it would it just didn't have to be oxycodone; it could be any opiate. Whatever I can get my hands on, I would take just to kind of take that edge off and make me not feel sick. Um, you know, and instead of instead of just being like <laughs> instead of being like a grown man and, and a man of character, of character and integrity, and asking for help, asking for hey, I got a problem. You know, I know any teammate I had, any teammate I had, I could have gone to their locker. I could have gone to I have, I I need help. I could have walked into Coach Peterson's office and he would have just shut the door and said, let's get you help. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have the humility to do that. And I carried not having that humility for a very long time in my life. And that, that nearly, nearly killed me. For more people to get help? I mean, that's that's a great lesson to, to take forward here for for people who don't get help. You know, what are those blocks? And you're you're identifying now, as you look back, what were the blocks to you getting help? Because you had all the help in the world you could have gotten in mm-hmm. Boise, right? hundred percent, you know, from, from, uh, coach Kugler to coach Peterson to coach, uh, you know, every coach Adams. I remember Clay, I was, I was really close with Clayton Adams and, uh, I could have asked any, any single one of them. And for me, it was just that it was a delusional, the, the delusional effect in my mind that I, I wanted to keep that facade going that they, that they didn't think anything was wrong. With and, uh, looking back on it, I mean, if you spent any time with me, you had to have known something was wrong. So Ryan, Ryan Keating is our guest, former Boise State football player, is telling his story of uh, opiate addiction and recovery and redemption, similar to Ryan Leaf's story to some degree. But so you burn all your bridges in Boise, you go back home to Huntington Beach, and you're addicted to these uh, opiates, and things really go off the rails, huh? Yeah, yeah, I burned, uh, yeah, like, like, I, like I like to, you know, compare it to, like, a tor- like I said, a tornado. You know, and I, I, I wrecked, I spun through Boise. I stole money from teammates. I, I still, you know, I was just, I was a scumbag to, to the people I once suited up with and called my brother, you know, my brothers in, in, in the battle of, of the game. And so I wrecked my, the tornado spun through Boise and I just left town, left leaving a wake of, you know, wrecked relationships. And I ran home and I ran back to California. I ran back to California with like the notion of I'm back here. Um, I'm back here running from my, running from my problems, thinking if I do like a geographical switch, everything will go away. But the biggest thing with that is I came with me. Like I came, you know, so I, I came down to California with myself. And so right. the problems just came right with me. You know, it wasn't Boise. It wasn't, you know, the good people in the Valley out there. It wasn't anything like that. It was me. And so I didn't, this is many years later reflecting on my life. But, um, and so I, I came down with, and told my family, I said, you know, I'm here to start my life and to to be with you guys. And ever, all my family lives in Huntington Beach or Costa Mesa or, or, or down in the Southland. And um, 
and that's just like the fake story I told, you know, but I was more so running away from that, the problems and, and not being a man and facing the people in Boise and facing my teammates and telling them, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a piece of shit and I stole from you and, uh, and I hurt you. And um, instead of having that humility stand in front of them and owning it, own, like, extremely owning that behavior, mm-hmm. I ran from it. And then you end up stealing from you. Got six brothers and sisters. Your parents. You end yeah. up stealing, and and how did you ultimately run across the law and and you get arrested for what you were doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was uh, just running through the gamut, the shady gamut of uh, a straight up junkie. And, and, and keep in mind, Jeff, this whole time I thought I was. I'm not a junkie. I've never done heroin. I've never done heroin. I, I, mean, I don't even know what meth looks like or cocaine or whatever. So, yeah, I stole from my brothers and my sisters and, and, and more so borrowing money and never paying it back. Or, you know, um, I stole, uh, uh, it was my brother's debit card. I mean, it was pin number. Mm. You know, time to go get high. You know, that's my little brother. This kid looked up to me, like idolized me. You know, um, and th- by, you know, God's grace and mercy, like him and I, our relationship has never been better today. but that's the kind of stuff i would do um and there's no i i I hope you know this doesn't get edited out but i was a piece of shit jeff i really was to my friends and my family good description yeah (laughs) to the people that love me the most i was i was i was a piece of shit and um you know the scary part looking back on is i didn't realize that was you know i I didn't realize it was so once those bridges got burned and, and family members stopped talking to me and um you know, I had a few family members tell me, like, I'm done with you. Like, you're going to end up dead or in prison. Mm. Um, but no, I'm done with you. You're not going to be around my wife. You're not going to be around my family. Like, I don't want you. Um, you know, I used to drive around Costa Mesa. I had a fire a fireman's truck sticker on the back of my truck that my brother gave me because he worked for the city of Costa Mesa. And he peeled, he, he peeled it off. He came, he came over where I was parked. He took it off my truck. He goes, I don't want to sign it on your vehicle. Like, we're not associated. Right. You can't go running, you know, hit and run or DUI or something in my city and tell people that. This time you'd, you'd mixed in alcohol with your mm-hmm. addiction too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I probably was rambling. Sorry, Jeff. I was, yeah. So to go back to it, I started stealing, you know, stole women's purses and money. And, and, you know, I was that, I was that, you know, that piece of shit guy who would go after these easy targets or whatever, just to feed that addiction. And I, granted, I was never, I never was raised like that. And I never did that until and that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. That's just it's just painting the picture of what you know what that does to your mind. It turns you into a monster. You know, I was in prison in my own body, really. Mm-hmm. I started stealing from wherever I could to, to feed that. I got caught. I got caught. I went to jail, and uh, it was like 38 days in the Orange County Jail. And um, you know, and, and I'll never forget. You know, like just the, the, the heartbroken look on my dad's face. He came to the courthouse and watched me get you know sentenced. And my two two of my brothers were there. Um, you know, and I was just, I couldn't even look him in the eye. And um, so I went to jail and that's where I kicked painkillers, essentially. I mean, I was, can't get him in there. Or you can, I guess you can. I just never tried or even wanted to. And so that was really, that was excruciating, um, kicking dope in jail. Wow. Uh, and it was just the, the, the woe is me, you know, the woe is me uh, mentality. I was actually in jail uh, with, uh, I don't want to say his name, but it's a, a you know, famous quarterback who played for USC. Uh, and then he played for the Raiders, and um, I saw him and met him, you know, and we actually kind of bonded. We were talking sports and whatnot, and, mm-hmm. and so he actually, I like, he's a good guy, um, but anyway, so I get out of jail, and first thing I do, I gotta, I gotta, go, I gotta go get high, you know, I gotta go, I'm, I will be off and running again, and, uh, and something happened to where the pharmacy company, pharmaceutical company switched up the the, the formula or whatever it was and i couldn't i couldn't in, in just inhale or ingest them like i was used to i used to smoke um oxycontin off foil mm-hmm. still thinking jeff still thinking i wasn't a junkie you know i'm not this is right i'm not a junkie. Right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sophisticated but yeah i'm okay yeah i'm a sophisticated drug addict and so i couldn't take that i couldn't take the medicine like that. i couldn't take it like that anymore and um didn't know what to do couldn't find any and so one night i just switched to um I just tried drinking, you know, it was, a, it was Jack and Coke and it was a big, big, big glass of it. I just chugged it and it kind of took that edge off. I was like, oh, okay. And then the next day, the next day, uh, the next night I did the same thing and then the next night. And then I was like, wow, I, I you know, I, 
I don't even want to take painkillers anymore, but I wanted to drink. And so it was like a, one, I was trading one vice for another, you know, seemingly thinking I was doing good. And I was, and I was telling my family and friends, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing those anymore. I'm good. You know? Wow. But the gets to your pancreas and, and mm -hmm. you end up being rushed to the hospital and yeah and yeah scary moment yeah yeah i was uh i remember it was august uh august of 2013 and for august of 2013 is when i really started i couldn't i wake up and i'd be in a lot of pain my stomach i felt it was just like somebody was kicking me in the gut and i didn't know what it was um i didn't say anything about it um you know like the same same thing in boise i didn't want to go ask for help hey i think i have a problem I'm not feeling right. Sure. <laughs> this drinking is not making me feel right. So I didn't want to ask for any help or any advice. And I just kept masking it. But every time, Jeff, I drank, it would go away. The pain would go away. So I would just, just get drunk and it would go away. And so I did that up until October. So this started in August. And I did that up until October. That was my pancreas um, getting bloated and blowing up, you know. And, uh, and so in October, it just popped. I mean, it was, it was, I remember I was at my parents' house and my, my dad was asking me, is your stomach still hurting? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of good. And I said, no, I was on the ground, like in the fetal position, with tears coming out of my eyes. And, and something happened to where it erupted inside of me. And uh, yes, yeah, so I was rushed to the ER. Um, the last thing I remember was, you know, vomiting, throwing up in the ER. And, and then, uh, you know, a couple of months later, I'm like in the ICU. And I guess, they rushed me into emergency surgery. My heart stopped twice. It was, it wasn't good. I was, it was, it was God's way of telling me, "Hey, your body and my body's way of telling me you can't drink, you can't take this anymore. It's going to kill you." And it nearly, it nearly did. And, and they put you in a medical coma. Yeah, they put me in a medical induced coma. Yeah, after the second time, my heart stopped um, on the operating table. They put me in a coma, and um, they put uh, at a trach, at a tracheotomy. So I have a trach scar. Um, I was, on, I was on a breathing tube, uh, you know, and they were preparing my, my parents, like literally um, uh, for funeral arrangements. They were telling me he's not going to make it tonight. He's, he's going to be in more woods tomorrow. This is my dad was telling me when I was in the coma, like, it's not, it's not going to be good. And, um, you know, it's just, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I'm saved and redeemed and he had a different plan for me. And, um, you know, I woke up from that. And, um, and it, long six weeks, Ryan, you it was, it was six weeks in and out of it. Yeah. In and out of the coma, in and out of the coma. Um, yeah, give her, I think plus, like a total accumulation it was about six weeks, but I, I was hard, hardcore in the, in it for, I think three to four, I think I'd have to go back and look at my medical records, but it was, it, it gradually brought me out, um, had major surgery. Um, it removed my gallbladder, removed, you know, part of my pancreas, um, scrape my liver, scrape everything else. And you know, then you have was, to learn how to walk and a lot of different huh? things. And so yeah. walk out of the hospital and then what? Yeah, I had to relearn how to walk and, 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 and I had nowhere else to go. So, you know, like any other um, self-loving, what, 30-year-old, 31-year-old at, at that time, you know, back to mom and dad's, um, nowhere else to go. So I went back to my parents' house and you know, they, the hospital sent over a hospital bed. They set up this whole room and this and that. And, um, you know, I was just, that's when, like, the self-pity and the, 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 the cautionary, like, oh, I'm such a victim of circumstance in like, my life. I'm such a loser and this and that. That's when that really set in. When I started thinking about all my friends up in Boise or even my high school friends who, Jeff, I had nobody left. I burned. It's not that I had nobody left. I chose. My actions dictated that. You know, my actions dictated you know, and it's so, it's such a refreshing way to think about it now because at the time I was just like, oh, I've never left. Nobody wants me. Nobody wants to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why, why don't you think nobody wants to talk to you? What, what made you uh, finally bottom out and, and turn for some help and where'd you go? So, yeah, it was, you know, I was couch surfing. Um, parents, my dad got wise to it. Um, he'll talk, you know, my dad talks about it all the time. He was doing everything he could and not listening. My little brother was like, you got to kick him out of the house. You got to stop enabling him. You got to, you know, so finally he, he, he just said, you can't stay here. I, I couch surfed on my, on my sister's house. My younger sister, uh, Shannon was the only one who would take me in. She was the only one who was still talking to me in the family at that time. And, wow. uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I surfed on her couch. Um, you know, the, um, one of her friends at the time, he was like, you, you should go to this place in San Pedro. This place, uh, 
that's called the Beacon House. And, and you know, it's, he went there and he's like, it's it's tough because it's a year long commitment. You have to go there for a year and you can't talk to anybody. And I, I was thinking at the time, I was like, well, nobody wants to talk to me right now. Anyway. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I still didn't want to go. I was like, I don't know about that. But I, I couldn't be homeless. I couldn't do homeless. I was too big of a coward to be homeless. I'm not going to go live on the streets, you know, bougie. And it's like, I had this whole thing. I'm like, I'm not going to go homeless. I'm not going to, I'm not as bad as, is 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 people who are homeless and i'm like no way i just i had people around me that were still able willing to try to make you know make it work with me but um and so yeah i went to a detox in costa mesa i detoxed for 10 days which is really hard no alcohol for 10 days and almost you know having seizures and whatnot and i went to san pedro uh, in december 2014 you know and i ended up uh i ended up staying there for three almost three and a half years it was a long-term treatment center you yeah. in the San Pedro Treatment Center three and a half years. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's 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 a it's a trip. When, people, when I tell people about it, um, I actually it, while I was living in treatment, uh-huh. I finished I finished my degree at Boise State because I left without finishing my degree. Um, so I finished my degree online through Boise State's online program. Okay. And then while and while I was living in treatment, I flew up there with uh, three of my best friends to this day who I met in treatment and then uh, the program director and my parents, we flew up there and um, I walked across that stage to give that to my parents. To give, you know, I want to give that gift to my mom. Um, you know, There's a funny story of that too, because we were in like the auxiliary gym. This was back in 2000. I can send you a pretty cool picture. I, did, I have like a side-by-side picture of when I was in the coma and when I was walking across that stage. Oh, great. Okay. So it's, it's a really cool, uh, I have it in my glove box. So whenever, when I get out of my car and I go to work with my students, I look at that picture and I say a prayer and I thank God and I go to work and I shouldn't be here. Um, so that picture really, really, really helps me out. Um, but when we were up in Boise, I was still like weird about being up there. I was like, okay, this place has changed. I mean, the whole campus looks different. I, I couldn't believe it, you know? And um, I was getting those questions asked to me online too. Like, what did the campus look like back when you went? Questions. I was like, how old am I? Mean, you know, I mean, but, uh, we're trying to kill some time and, and all the people were in the auxiliary gym and we we're practicing walking and she said, okay, we're all done. Let's okay. Stand up. If you, you know, graduated in three years or less or with this or with this honors and people would stand up. And then finally at the end, the lady at the, at the, on the microphone, she says, stand up if it's taking you longer, 15 or 15 years or longer to graduate. And it was me. I stood up and like two old, two little old ladies, sweet little old ladies across from stood up. And, uh, Oh. I, I had a moment, Jeff, where I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. And they gave me a standing ovation. They're like, you, you came back. You made it back. That's and great. To finish. That's great. So even in that moment, I'm like, I'm embarrassed to stand up. And I was like, no, this is, this is no. This, you know, I finished where I started. Um, you know, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. You know. Well, things are going in the right direction. Ryan Keating is telling his story of uh, addiction, redemption. And, and your dad was a special ed uh, teacher. He was involved in special ed in, in the high schools in Southern California. You saw that as a kid. You loved it. You always yeah. knew you wanted to work in special education. And yeah. so tell us about your career now and uh, you're engaged. You got a lot going on. So what? what's your... Yeah. yeah, I always knew. I always knew I wanted to be, you know, a special ed teacher um, or something, you know, and, and and not like coaching football, but just just let me come out to practice a little bit and just talk to the players, you know, kind of be like that kind of guy. But uh, so yeah, I, I I was in treatment and I got hired at a school district while I was still living in treatment um, in Buena Park, right next to Knott's Berry Farm down in SoCal. Wow. And everyone asked me like, why do you live in San Pedro? I think it's I love it out there. It's cool. You know, I'm not. I didn't want to go to work and tell them, hey, I live in I'm in an alcohol treatment center, drug and alcohol treatment center. <laughs> You know, uh, and that's one thing I didn't want to go into my new job, you know, leading with my chin. And, and I just wanted my, I wanted my walk and my work ethic to speak for itself. And so I started, I was a special ed aide um, in like a, a moderate to severe class. And I learned very quickly that I work well with, um, you know, I don't want to down, down, no, I work well with like the more challenging, the more challenging behavior students. Mm, you know? okay. I work well, I work well with the more challenging behavior students. And, uh, students, um, you know, I believe that were written off. Uh, there's a few students that like I can't deal with him. No, nobody has been able to work with him or her. Can, mm-hmm. can you give it a shot? And I'm like, where, show me where to go. You know, because because I that was me. I put on that jacket where I was written off, and I nobody wanted to give me a shot. You know, and I, I try to take that into my job. And I love I love working with 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 
with kids who are deemed to be challenging, they just need to be loved and cared for and, and, and you know, shown some compassion, you know, and shown some compassion. And you know, I've been around teachers where it's a grind. It's a grind and there's, you know, teachers have complained about the student that student. I love it. I go, you know, maybe I'm just naive and green, but, um, you know, that might be me one day, but I, I pray, I pray to God not, you know. And so I started doing that in a junior high school setting. Um, then I moved into a, a different section of the, of the school. It was like more moderate, moderate, mild to moderate. So the kids were like higher functioning, students were high functioning. I really enjoyed that. Um, and then now I work as a behavior interventionist uh, in Palos Verdes. And so um, I work one-on-one with, with, with uh, like social behaviors. And this is like my, what I want to teach. This is, I want, it's in like an adult adult transition program. So all my students that I work with are 18, 18 to 22 years old, and I'm just getting them prepared for life. Wow. We help, you know, ride, I teach them how to ride the bus. I'll go to Trader Joe's with them. A lot of them, a lot of the students work at Trader Joe's. Uh, down here. And, and it's cool, and I love it. And I love it. I just get to be like um, that, that life coach companion along with uh, like a behavior interventionist. And so um, and now I know I just enrolled in grad, graduate school, so I'm getting my master's degree in learning tech, learning and technology with the um, moderate to severe, to severe special education credentials. Wow, that's so cool. So, so Ryan, you, you got this great story. You're engaged to get married. You're going to get that done in yeah. 30 days. Yeah, I'm engaged. <laughs> Back all the way. If you boil it down, and I know you've, you, you say you've been talking to Ryan Leaf, the, the former yeah, yeah. NFL and, and college football player, and he's been a big help to you. When you boil it down, what do you think the message should be to somebody listening to this that thinks they have a, you know, somebody in their life that's going down this road, or what are things that we should think about when we do come across somebody that needs help? What, what's the best way to approach it, do you think? The best way, in my opinion, to approach it, it's going to be the hardest thing to do in the moment is just ask, ask for help and just confide in somebody. Confide, and I didn't confide in anyone. Um, and the collateral damage of me, you know, not not showing that humility and having that much pride was all the all the burned and torn down relationships I have and all or I had, and then all the people I hurt. And and, and that could have been all avoided if I just if I just would have asked asked somebody for help. Hey, I need your help. And what about the 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 observers, the collateral damage, the the parents, the friends, the girlfriend? Yeah. What what do we do per se if we're in a relationship with somebody who was going down the hole like you were? Well, that's the thing, you know. It's you got to make. I've never been in that situation with. I've never been in that situation, obviously, with somebody personal to me. I've been that that person in that relationship, but you know, the advice I would give somebody, you know, the best thing my my dad ever did for me and my mom ever did for me was to cut me off. You know, I had no options. I had no options. So if there's always an option, I mean, that's not, and people, at the end of the day, it's not anyone's fault. It's not your fault or the wife or the girlfriend or the family member's fault. If somebody doesn't want to get sober or get help, um, that person has to do it or they'll never do it. You know, and it just, it just got to the point where I, I just got my ass kicked so bad that I had no other options. Jeff, I had no other options. And, but yeah, that's the advice, you know, I would give and my dad talks about it all the time. So that was the best decision he ever made. He said he wished he would have made it years before. You know, um, but he was scared. You know, he was scared, and I know he said that he dealt with a lot of fear. Like, if I don't help you, then you might end up dying on the street or this or that. And um, it sounds callous, but I mean, uh, I wish my dad would have taken that risk earlier. Um, but it's not on him. You know, it's on me. And so, I tell people now, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. I have spent a lifetime blaming everyone, blaming everything, circumstances this that if i didn't get that if this would have worked out or that person and then you know i get to uh, I, I didn't have a beard and um i didn't have a beard and then i went to detox or when i went to the treatment center you couldn't have facial hair um so i actually had to shave so every day i had to look at myself in the mirror every day so i actually had to look at myself in the mirror. i couldn't shave with my eyes closed you know i couldn't shave with my eyes closed so um wow great story ryan i appreciate you sharing it it's going to be fun to see how this all progresses for you and i'm sure a lot of people will be reaching out to you so uh yeah, life is uh thanks for having me jeff life is just so good i'm so over the over the moon in love with my fiance um and i'm just i'm just in love with my new life and, and just trying to i'm just a whole guy i'm trying to stay humble and do just a little bit better than i did yesterday 
That's all I have. Well, best Patrick. to you, man. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. So I just stopped the recording there, and and I'll I'll. I'll uh, there obviously has to be a little editing and and so forth, but I'll let you know how it all goes. I got you. Cool, man. Now the email yeah. I have for you is your work email. I don't know if you have um, a different. Email. No, that's the email. That's the email I use. It's my school email. It's for uh, Azusa Pacific. I, that's where I'm going to school. That's great, man. And Brad Brad Lorando did ask me. I was just talking to him. You remember Brad? Yeah, yeah. And so he, I think he may have your phone number. I don't okay. Know he's reached out to you, or maybe he will. I don't. I don't know. But um, okay. He's the. You know. You know what Brad does down there. I, he's he works in. When I was there, he was like the assistant associate athletic director, wasn't he? He's in charge of football. So okay. All the business he does everything for Harson. So he basically runs a football program. You know, Harson's okay. coach. Uh, I don't know if he's going to call you or whatever, but. Yeah. If you if you if you talk to him again, I would. I would be over the moon. I would drive my truck up there if I can speak to those guys and just. Yeah, I'll tell. Them. No, I'll tell them that. I'm sure he's he's probably. They're always thinking a great story. So, and I'll tell Coach Pete when I talk to him. Sometimes I talk to Coach Pete. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just. Uh, and Coach Pease was just texting me right here. I was. Yeah, <laughs> Pease was asking me. You know, I moved to Dallas. What the hell am I doing? Yeah. Bubble. He's <laughs> Coach Pease in Montana now. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, no, there's like a network of, and I'm not looking you know, like, and somebody asked me one day, Jeff, they're like, man, you can, you can try to go around and hone your skill. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not clear. And I, I stutter sometimes and I mumble and I've had friends that say, you, <laughs> you have a story, man. And you can go around and share your story and like travel and make this move. I don't want to do any of that. I just, I, if, if, if I can get, if I can pay somebody for me to go do that, if it's going to help possibly somebody you know, eat silver or whatever, or help their family member, just something. I would pay. For, I would. I would pay Brad Lerano to come up there and talk to me. I'll tell him that, man. I, I wish you the best of luck, Ryan. I hope you stay. <laughs> so let me know how you're doing. All right, and I'll let you. All know right, Jeff. You here, man. All right. Okay, for sure. I'll be. I'll text with you, and, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Be good. All right, man. Take care. Be good. Ryan Keating, really, uh, quite a story. If you want to get a hold of Ryan, just shoot me an email. Uh, he's got a great story. Uh, I think anybody who's been down on their luck or been through dependence on painkillers or alcohols or drugs, uh, this kid's got a great story, compelling visuals. That he's got a picture of himself when he was in that medically induced coma that keeps him motivated on a daily basis. So if that can help somebody in their life, uh, reach out to me. I can get you in touch uh, with Ryan. That's it for this week's uh, Bronco Football Podcast. Uh, please subscribe to the pod so you get it uh, available to you to download. Or just send me an email, and I can add you to an email reminder list that will bring that pod to you, make it easier for you until you get the hang of it. I realize in talking to some of you that you've been, you know, listening to me on the radio for years. You never really had to download any podcasts. Others get the hang of it already. And please, uh, when you're there, review the podcast. It's, it's highly uh, Im important in that world, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for listening. Thanks to uh, Wyatt Huskins for his editing, uh, Alex Carter, our engineer, Dan Leibowitz with the music, and, of course, our guest, Ryan Keating. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.